All right, you guys go ahead and have a seat. Uh, but not the kids. If you are, is it four years old through fifth grade, you are dismissed. And so your teachers are in the back. They're waiting for you guys. We'll let you make your way to the back. For the rest of you, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. That's half our church. <laughs> Isaiah 9, I'll let, them, uh, I'll let them disperse and be gone before we get started here. Um, as, as we get started, um, let me introduce myself. My name is Jay Freimeyer, and I'm on staff here at the church. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're going to speak uh, particularly to you later in the service and, and let you know how you can find out more information on the church. So this morning looks a little different. We'll do that on the back end. Um, but for now, welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Um, so if you weren't able to make it last week, we have changed up things a little bit during this Advent time, as you can tell. Um, we sang a couple songs on the front end. I'm going to talk, and then we're going to pause and reflect, and we're going to sing in response to uh, something we've heard. And then I'll come back up and talk a little bit, and we'll do the same. Um, and being in Isaiah 9, uh, 6, we are looking at the four names attributed to Jesus before his arrival. And so last week, Jeremy came up and he preached on uh, Mighty God and Prince of Peace. And so this week, we're going to look specifically at Everlasting Father and Wonderful Counselor. And so you should be there now. And if you don't have a Bible, hey, we've got some under the seats in front of you or underneath you. Those are our gift to you. Feel free to take that. Uh, but it'll also be on the screens here on either side of me as well. So let's read together Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <clears throat> so over these next few moments, we're going to look at that uh, term, Everlasting Father, which might sound a little confusing on the surface. I hope it does. If you're familiar at all with the Trinity, we know that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and this might be a little perplexing to us. As we read in Isaiah 9, 6, that Jesus is to be called Everlasting Father. Now, if we're not careful, we can quickly fall into heresy that the early church fought to extinguish. And so I want to make sure we don't do that this morning, okay? And so to keep us from that, let's go to Romans chapter 5. And I think this is going to give us some context and help us understand a little bit more what Isaiah is trying to communicate to us. So Romans 5, starting in verse 12, it'll also be in your screens here. Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So whether or not you think this is fair, this is everyone's story. All of us, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, no matter where you were born, no matter where you live now, Adam is your first father. Sin came into the world through Adam, we read in verse 12. Therefore, death came into the world because sin has come into the world. Because, because of Adam, sin and death have now spread to everyone, okay? So 
hope you're tracking with me there. This is a doctrine that we call original sin. The Bible is full of evidence that speaks to this, and I'm going to give us just a few of those. Genesis 8, 21. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 51, 5. This is David in repentance. Uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Proverbs 22, 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2, 3. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hey, y'all feeling pretty good yet? (laughs) Every one of us, every person is deserving of judgment. Now, if you're still not convinced, let me try and dispel that with, uh, for you with an example. Who might you consider to be the sweetest, most precious, most innocent among us? Now, I'm gonna give an example here uh, because many of you have used those very terms to describe my own two-year-old daughter. We're gonna put her forward as a case study. Now, we've got a picture. There she is. Yeah, just adorable. Never done anything wrong, right? Yeah, look at how cute she is. Eden's at the age now where she is learning all sorts of things. She's expanding her vocabulary. She's running around the house. She's getting more curious. She's learning to push the limits a little bit too. A few weeks ago, Brooke was downstairs and I was looking for something in our hallway closet. So the kids were in our room, the door was shut, and they were watching a TV show and all was right in the world for like a moment, right? They hadn't been alone long and we hear this ear-splitting, like borderline demonic Uh, noise, scream coming from the room. Now, I rushed inside thinking that Henry, who turns five in January, has just obliterated his sister, okay? So we got a picture of them here. Just for comparison's sake, there you go. This is Halloween. Henry was a pet doctor, a veterinarian, and she was his pet, the dinosaur. (laughs) But I show this picture so you can see The difference in size here, okay? He is double her weight and about double her height, all right? So just keep that image in your mind. So I'm preparing for the worst. You can pull the picture down now. I'm preparing for the worst in those few moments that it took me to get in the room. And uh, based on the level of the scream, I knew something was really wrong. And, And parents, you know what I'm talking about? Like there's different levels of scream. Like there's this whiny, like someone kinda stole my toy scream. And there's this whimper, like pout, I'm not getting my way scream. And then there's this like something major just happened scream. That's what we heard, okay? So there's this something major just happened scream. So I fling open the door and, and what I see is Eden standing over Henry and not just like looking at him, but, but her chest is puffed out and she's pointing at him saying, no, Bubba. And he is just losing his mind, crying, wailing. And I'm like, what just happened? So Henry as he's screaming, communicates, sissy, hit me in the face. And so I'm trying to make sense of all this. And, and listen, guys, he probably deserved it, right? <laughs> like, let's, let's just be honest. I don't know what happened on the other side of that door. But you know what I, what I do know is nobody had to teach her how to do that, right? Nobody had to teach her how to smack someone in the face, uh, although she's had good training at home with Henry. Uh, nobody taught her how to talk back. Nobody taught her how to throw her food when she doesn't want it. Nobody taught her how to scream when she doesn't get her way. She is a heathen, folks. Let's just be honest. 
And all y'all parents out there are part laughing, part crying, because you know inside you've got a story to one-up what I just told you, right? You're, you're like crying on the inside. She's got this shirt also. She actually wore it yesterday. It says, follow your heart in cursive. And like there's a picture of a heart. She was wearing it yesterday. And every time I see it, I'm like, no, nah, don't, do not follow your heart. You are a sinner. <laughs> Eden inherited from her first father and then her second father, me, but from her first father, Adam, the sin nature that leads to death in the same way that you and I have, hasn't she? As a result, we will all die. Now, this, this alone, this is terrible, tragic news, isn't it? We are in trouble. Now, enter into our story, Isaiah 9, 6, this child that is to be born, the son that is to be given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Now, let's, let's look a little bit what this means. So this is Romans 5, starting in verse 15. Now, remember, we're contrasting this to Adam, what we just read in verses 12 through 14. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So apart from Jesus, there is no righteousness, there is no eternal life. There is none. There is only sin, death, and condemnation. But for all who have submitted their lives to Jesus, for all who are found in him, he has become our eternal father, our everlasting father in inheriting righteousness and eternal life. This is good news, friends. Jesus did nothing to earn this death. Adam was not his father. From the scriptures, we know that he came in the form of a baby. From a virgin, he lived a sinless life, and he died the death that you and I deserve. But you and I inherited this sin and death from Adam. And apart from Jesus, this is our story. So to contrast this just one more time, John Piper explains how that which Jesus accomplished exceeds what Adam did for those who were in him. The obedience of Christ is parallel, but vastly superior to the disobedience of Adam. The righteousness imputed to those who are in Christ is parallel, but vastly superior to the sin imputed to those who are in Adam because of his disobedience. The life that comes to us who are in Christ through that imputed righteousness, it's parallel, but it's vastly superior to the death that comes to those who are in Adam through that imputed sin. So all that Christ has accomplished, specifically here in Romans 5, it's parallel to what Adam has done, but it's vastly superior. It's vastly superior. So in a few moments, again, I told you this would be brief. In a few moments, we're gonna sing. The band's gonna come right back up and we're gonna celebrate this idea that Christ is our new father. Because in Jesus, this baby that is to be born in Isaiah 9, he has come. The government is on his shoulders and he is your everlasting father. 
Now, hearing all of this and sitting under it for just a few moments, do you believe this? And I, and I don't mean do you, do you like mentally process this and you believe in your head that this, this is a true statement. I mean, do you really believe that what Christ has done for you and for me is vastly superior to what was done under Adam? If you are in Christ today, these truths, the, these realities, they're real for you right now. Right now, we have righteousness and eternal life coming for us. This is our new inheritance. So we ought to live this way every day, every day. So here are a few questions in response to what we've just heard. And again, the band, I'm gonna go have you, have you guys go ahead and come up. Here's some questions to think on that, that will lead us into a time of response, into a time of worship. Do you live a life that reflects this truth? Do you live in such a way that expresses your belief in these glorious realities of your new life in Jesus? And to be more specific, and, and maybe just to go back to the basics, think about what your life was like before Christ, before any of these realities, these truths were, were true of you, before any of that. Think about your life before Jesus when you lived under the curse of sin. What was your life like? What were your thoughts like. Since encountering Jesus, since meeting Jesus, how has your life now changed as a result of the righteousness and eternal life that you have received in him? At some point in the future, we are all going to die. As a result of the sin that has fractured our broken world, death is inevitable. But the death that you and I are going to taste at some point, it's not the end. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and death will be destroyed. That last moment of our eyes closing here and breathing our last is going to usher in that next moment of opening our eyes and seeing Jesus in his fullness and spending eternity with him. Because of this, we have no reason to fear even death itself. This, friends, is what we get to look forward to. The day is coming because of our standing in Jesus when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrows, no more disease. We will dwell with God for all eternity. May we sing and celebrate now what God has done for us in Jesus, our everlasting Father. As we sing this song, um, I want to invite you, you can stand if you want to stand. If you want to sit and let these words wash over you this morning, that is okay too. As we reflect and contemplate upon the good Father. I've heard a thousand stories and what they think you're like. I've heard the tender whisper of love in 
Did all night and you tell me that you're pleasing me now. Never alone. He's good. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. I've seen many searching for answers far and wide. I know we're all searching for answers. Only you provide the.
right, you guys be seated. All right, let's do this one more time. Uh, we'll jump right back into Isaiah 9. Uh, we're going to look at the final name for us, but actually it's the first one in Isaiah 9:6. So let's read this one more time together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, nobody needs guidance and wisdom more than the couple going out to dinner that has yet to pick a place, right? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, we've tried to alleviate this in our home by one of us nominating three places and the other person getting to pick from the three, hoping that within the three, you approve of one of them, right? And so typically, I cheat on this all the time, um, Brooke will tell you, because most, most of my options are like, all right, a place with salad, a place with rabbit food, a place with grass, and um, now I want steak and potatoes or torchies, always torchies. Um, I'm, I'm always cheating at this. Perhaps uh, you've had this conversation before and one person might say, uh, I don't really care, you pick, just, just pick wherever. Okay, well, let's go here. Nah, I hate that place. Okay, so let's go here. I just ate there three days. Okay, I'm not gonna, no, no, really, really, you pick, it's fine. It would all be so much easier if someone outside of us would, would just come in and just tell us what to do. They would just say, hey, suck it up. You're gonna eat at this place, get over it, wouldn't it? It would just be so much easier if someone told us what to do. Now, this obviously is a ridiculous example. It has little significance or importance. If I have to eat salad for lunch, I'm not going to die. It's going to be good for me, actually. This is clearly a first world problem. But on a more serious level, if we're talking about things in life that do have significance and do have importance and they do matter, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, if someone would come in from the outside of us, and they would just tell us what to do. Now, when we look back at the history of the people of God, especially in the Old Testament, one of the collective cries of the people, I believe, is tell us what to do. Whether they're up against a formidable foe or um, they don't, if they're just lost, they're, they're constantly saying, tell us what to do. When we examine the context here in Isaiah a little more, that seems to be the case here as well. In the years leading up to the writing of this letter, there had been some political and military peacetime. But the peacetime wasn't occurring because of God's favor or because they had good relationships with their neighbors. It was primarily through poor leadership within the Assyrians that had prevented their military aggression. And so the Assyrians in this day, were the, they were the, the big regime in this region at this time. And so they had poor leadership come up, and so there was naturally peace as a result of that because of the poor leadership. And I think this lasted for about 75 years. So as a result, one commentator gives us a good picture into how God's people responded to this peace. He writes, These long and comparatively stable reigns gave both Judah and Israel, but especially Israel, a false sense of complacency. God was surely pleased with them, they felt. Otherwise, they would not be experiencing such blessings. History shows that the peace in this region did not last long. Assyria's dominance re-engaged, perhaps stronger than ever, and the book of Isaiah is written in the midst of that reign. The people of God had been lulled to sleep in thinking that God was lavishing these material blessings upon them, but they were mistaken. These blessings they felt 
were a false sense of comfort. They were not from God. Ultimately, it seemed that they had mistakenly identified God's favor or lack thereof primarily on whether or not there was peace with their aggressive neighbors. Now, for years, again, they lived this way. For about 75 years, they lived this way. They thought life is good, life is stable, the kids are healthy, so therefore God must love me, right? Now, unfortunately, I think we can relate, but that is a sermon for another time. But this is what they were experiencing in Isaiah when it was written. So when the Assyrians re-engaged their aggression, you might expect the people of God to turn back to him for deliverance. It's only then that it seemed they had forgotten their God. It's in the middle of all this mess that they cry, tell us what to do. But rather than looking to God, they pursue a more immediate answer from the same source that the pagans in their day had done. So let's go back just one chapter, Isaiah 8. Isaiah tells them not only that they should be crying out to God, but what happens to them as a result of their failure to do so. I'm going to start reading in verse 19 of chapter 8. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So things aren't great here, right? This does not look good for them. The people, again, they're in a terrible place. They've been lulled to sleep. They've had this false sense of comfort. They've wandered from God, and rather than turning back to him in repentance, they turn to false gods. Gods that Isaiah tells us have no life in them, and they have no light in them, only darkness, which for us should be an allusion to, to Jesus coming in John. The people then, as a result, have been thrust into deep spiritual darkness. They're tired and hungry, and they're raging at the one true God. This is how chapter 8 concludes. The very next verse, Isaiah 9-1, ought to have been the best news in the world to them. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Is that not incredible? Over and over and over and over, the people of God experience the discipline of God because they wander from him. They are a forgetful people. And here Isaiah tells the people of the ultimate redemption that is soon going to be coming. The Messiah would soon be arriving, and when he does, there will be no more gloom. Isaiah 9, 2, and 3, the people who walked in darkness, these people that we just read about, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has this light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This no longer sounds like a people raging at their God, does it? A people seeking answers from the dead or the occult, a people walking in darkness. The child being spoken of in verse 6, he is the bringer of this light. He is the deliverer of great rejoicing. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, we see the effects of what his arrival will bring. So in a way, their cries of, tell us what to do, hundreds of years before Jesus are already being answered with, look to Jesus. 
tell us what to do, look to him. This child who will have the government upon his shoulder, the one whose name is Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, he is your wonderful counselor. He is the one. So let's pause just for a moment. Let's think, what, what makes someone a good counselor? Now, this, this is by no means an exhaustive list. I did not consult all kinds of sources for this. I just thought, personally, what do I believe are some marks of a good counselor? One is someone who listens. Jesus, who is your wonderful counselor, he cares for you and he loves you. He desires to know you in an intimate way. Another mark of a good counselor is someone who can feel what you feel in your pain. They hurt with you in the midst of your pain. Hebrews 4 Verses 14 through 16. Speaking of Jesus, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We can draw near to Christ in all things because he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Another mark of a good counselor is someone who can make sense of your chaos and lead you to life. If you've ever been in a great period of suffering or anguish or maybe you're just anxious, everything feels chaotic, doesn't it? It feels all jumbled. A good counselor can come in and they can put the puzzle together. They can make sense of this. We draw near to Jesus and we receive mercy and we find grace in our time of need. Jesus does not offer self-help. He does not offer surface level solutions. He does not offer answers that do not lead to life. What we ultimately need in all things, in all situations, but especially when there's confusion and chaos around us, is more of Jesus, who is our wonderful counselor. And finally, perhaps the most forgotten, a mark of a good counselor is someone who reminds you of who you are in Jesus. We don't just need to be told what to do, but that's often what we want. We don't just need to be told that, we need to be reminded of who we are. So take for instance, let's say, let's say you have a terrible disease like cancer and you stub your toe or break your toe, which sounds painful, right? It sounds terrible. In the immediacy of the moment, we may think, man, we've got to solve this toe issue. Like there's a throbbing pain, broken toe. But we all know that the greater issue there, there's something deeper going on. We don't just need to be told what to do. We need to be reminded of who we are. I think the times in my life where I've been most frazzled or most anxious, it's often tied to an event or a, a current circumstance. But wrapped up in all of this is, is my short memory of who I am in Jesus. I forget that I'm a son of God, that he loves me, that he cares for me. It's like I'm a 33-year-old toddler running around like the world is collapsing in around me. At least that's what I feel like. He has not forgotten me and he has not forgotten you in the midst of, in the midst of whatever circumstance you are in that has you anxious. Now, again, in a few moments, we're gonna sing and we're gonna celebrate once more. So as the band comes up again and we transition into this time, let, let me remind us again of our reality in Jesus. He comes with grace to help in our time of need. When we have mighty God, everlasting Father, 
coming to us as wonderful counselor, we receive this word as authoritative, don't we? It's superior to any word of criticism or critique that you might be feeling in your heart or from the enemy. He hears the cries of your heart. He knows your needs on a very personal level and he speaks to them specifically. And he might be doing so even now, right now. So sons and daughters of God, please listen to this. You're heard, you're known, you're loved, you're listened to. You're held close, you're more than your sin. You're more than the best you have to offer. You're more than even those good aspects of you. You you no longer have to run and hide as your first father Adam did in the garden. In Jesus, you only have to draw near in confidence because in him, you are everything that he is. Now let me finish this portion with reading Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 once more. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is Jesus, our wonderful counselor. I am who you say I am. You are. 
time of communion here, and um, I I just want us to think on these things you've heard today, but also just reflecting on the Christmas season and thinking how incredible it is that God has come to us. God has come to us in the flesh, and it's not just this happy ending for him on earth. He went to the cross. He was crucified, and he took on our sin, our death, all this that we inherited from our father, Adam, he took it on for us. But he he didn't stay there, right? So we sing and celebrate today because he's not in the grave, he's alive. He's raised to new life and all who are found in him are also raised to new life. And so these realities we spoke of before, they're true of us because we're in him. He was raised to life. Now all who are found in him receive that also. And so you could, be, you could be any of a number of places this morning, but I want to speak specifically to those of you who are, who are in here and, and you may be saying, I, I don't know that I've ever tasted that or I've ever given my life to Jesus or I don't, I don't know what any of that means. And so as you're processing this, man, just pause and reflect on all this that we've heard, the realities that we shared this morning and we talked about, this, these good things we receive in Jesus. If they're not true of you, ask yourself why. Why are they not true of you? What are the realities in your life? And maybe you would like to respond this morning in faith to Jesus. We would ask you to come forward and receive communion with us for the first time. But if that's not you and you're still unsure, that's okay. We just ask that you you stay where you are and you just reflect and pray in this time. But for the rest of us in this season, again, you could be a number of places too. You could be anxious for buying presents and traveling to the in-laws and you know, a number of different places that you can be in this season. But for this moment, let us just pause and think and how incredible it is that God has come. Emmanuel has come to us to seek and to save the lost, you and me. So 
the band's going to keep playing and we're going to sing a little bit more. Take a few moments and reflect on these things. And when you're ready, you come forward and we celebrate. This is a time of celebration. You take the bread and you take the juice. We celebrate. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he took the bread and he broke it. And he looked at his disciples and he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. And he took the cup and he said to his followers, this is my blood which has been shed for you. So again, this is a time of celebration. This is a time for us to be excited that, that Jesus has accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves and it's finished. So take a few moments when you're ready, you come. There's two stations in the front and there's one in the back.